As public theologians, both Duran and I believe that everything about us says something about God and something about the world. The late theologian James Cone phrased it like this, theology is political language. We're here to figure out what that means here and now. Welcome to episode 16 of Public Theologians. I'm Casey Hobbs. With me is Duran Hill. Duran, it's the week of Thanksgiving. How are you? Oh, you know, I have so much to be thankful for, uh, not least of which this great country we live in. <laughs> That's right. This great, perfect country. And um, yeah, it's, it's uh, this, this time of year um, is very interesting. Uh, it's kind of, you know, similar to the 4th of July and um, times that we just uh, get to buy completely wholesale into to the myth that has been made uh, of America. So, um, what Durant, myth would that be? We are a chosen nation or royal priesthood. Oh, wait, no. Oh, wait. That's, that's not what that means. Sorry. No, yeah. I don't think that was specifically addressed to Americans. Gotcha. I'll have to go back in the Bible and double check that, but I'm pretty sure. I see Jesus everywhere. So. <laughs> the professor of biblical eisegesis, Duran Hill, has reappeared. I'm glad to see it. Well, Duran, I am really excited about our guest today. Um, he's a dear friend of mine, um, and I got uh, so excited that I ended up writing a little mini sermon. Um, so there's now between you, me, and uh, our guest, Bill Nellis, there are three um, preachers on line at the same time. So I've written down my sermon, and I'll deliver that right now if you're good with that, Duran. Nothing more than hearing uh, a sermon recitation. Uh, come on with it, Casey. <laughs> All right. I know, I know Dr. Smith would be really proud of this, uh, this sermon you've got here. I hope so. I hope so. So, okay, so this week we celebrate Thanksgiving in the U.S., the holiday was first instituted by Lincoln in 1863, mid-Civil War. Of course, um, it's a bit sentimentalized. It's kind of a fairy tale of uh, pilgrims and Indians sitting down at a table, or Native Americans, uh, to use a better word, uh, as equals and enjoying turkey and pumpkin pie. And it's largely that. It's a fairy tale. Uh, fairy tales are ways we frame larger stories and uh, set up a narrative. In this case, the motivation for the story is clear. Our collective psyche, particularly as white Christian Americans, needs an overt justification to the outright evils perpetrated in the so-called settling of the new world. My European ancestors committed genocide and theft to subjugate a people and a land. History is full of examples of people that look like me um, betraying the indigenous people of America. So, we should be honest about the history of Thanksgiving um, in the midst of embracing the best of what this holiday offers. Um, to me, Thanksgiving is the best day of the year. Um, I wake up and I cook on Thanksgiving because I love to cook. Um, and it feels different because time is slower on Thanksgiving. Uh, the family is together without typical distractions. Um, we usually turn on some music, we play, we eat, we drink. Um, of course, we count our blessings. Particularly this year, I think we all need to reclaim a bit of the subversive nature of inaction and of rest and even of, to use a theological term, Sabbath. So our guest today is, as I said, Phil Nellis. So Phil is an artist, a theologian, um, and a pastor in all the best senses of that word. Um, Phil has done academic work on the Sabbath, and he has practiced Sabbath better than anyone I've known personally. Uh, to borrow a phrase from Dr. Cornell West, uh, Phil is a force for good in the world. Mm. Um, and on a personal note, as I mentioned before, Phil is one of my best friends. Um, 
Phil, I am delighted to have you on Public Theologians. It is good to be with you. Nice to meet you, Duran. Nice to meet you too, Phil. Hey, Casey, what happened to the sermon? Was that it? I, I, didn't, hear, I didn't hear an altar call. I thought <laughs> you were going to do Psalm 100, enter <laughs> gates of thanksgiving. Come on, man. I'm, I'm ready to go. Well, I got to save something. Got to save something for mid-podcast. So that was just the okay. prepared okay. remarks. We'll see okay. what the spirit <laughs> does um, throughout the rest. <laughs> Feel free to interrupt me at any time, Casey, and finish that sermon. <laughs> well, I'm going to um, rely on the community of you guys as well to uh, probably sermonize um, just fine. So I'm sure between the three of us, we'll come up with, with, uh, with more. Um, so, Phil, I had you on. Uh, really, I was looking for a good excuse to have you on. Um, since uh, Duran and I started this uh, project. And um, so I've known you for over 10 years and have known you to practice the Sabbath well. Um, when we talked about you coming on the podcast, uh, it was you were um, telling me that your Sabbath practice may be kind of coming in and out, shifting a bit. Um, so I want to talk about that. Um, definitely bringing this uh, in a, really in a posture of curiosity and wanting to kind of take a bit of a departure from what we normally do on this podcast to, to go real um, political and, um, and really um, sink into the idea of rest and Sabbath. So um, first question, Phil, can you, can you just tell us how you first became aware of the Sabbath as kind of a modern, practicable idea? Mm -hmm. um, well, I, I grew up in, in the church. I grew up on the mission field as an MK. So I was, I was surrounded by church culture, Christian culture, and exported white culture, um, particularly the non-denominational evangelical 1970s Christianity that, that got exported all over the world through, through the modern missions movement. Um, I grew up with an awareness of Sabbath really within two categories. One that it was something that my dad grew up with a heavy handed version of and did not want to pass on to his kids in any way. Um, kind of the Puritan staining kind of rigid Sabbath where they'd go to church on Sunday and then the kids couldn't play all day. They had to read the Bible and pray and it was just miserable. Um, the other category was, was kind of just the dismissive posture that most Christians had towards it because they bundled it up with the many laws that Jesus apparently um, kind of threw out. And since Jesus, you know, came to, Kind of fulfill the law we don't need to keep any laws and that was that so Jesus said we didn't need it apparently and so it was not it was not a, a category to consider or to contest with it didn't have anything to say to us um, or much to offer so it it came to me as a um, seminary student I was wrapping up my MDiv and had the opportunity to do some research for uh, one of my favorite professors, Dr. Dan Allender. And um, he'd been um, recruited by his publisher to write a book in a series of books on ancient spiritual practices. And he um, chose to do the one on the Sabbath because he believed that that one had the most to teach him and it was the one he was the worst at. Um, so I said yes to an opportunity to do research um, and together with my research partner, got plunged into the world of the Sabbath and 10 hours a week for eight months got to dig deep. And some of that, a fraction of that ended up in, in, in his book on the Sabbath. But most of, most of the formative experience was all three of us, Dr. Allender, myself and uh, Rachel Clinton, we agreed to 
formally practice Sabbath with our families um, during the course of this project. And it, it was something that um, was so formative for me that it remained as a, as a practice for my family for years to come. Yeah, so uh, I think, I know I grew up with kind of that second version of um, Sabbath not really being, I don't think I ever heard it argued against um, growing up, um, but it was kind of a non-thing, um, and which is interesting because it's one of the Ten Commandments, so it's, it seems uh, pretty crucial theologically. Um, but for those of us that, um, that maybe weren't exposed to actual Sabbath thought and practice, um, could you just describe um, like a typical Sabbath um, in your practice? Yeah, for um, to make a day holy, right? To, to, to go back to that, that, that category of, of what does it mean to set something aside? Um, is really speaks to intention. So to intend a day um, is is really to to lean in with with a type of attention around the the pieces you'd like to bring to the forefront. Whether those are you know the ritual of the Sabbath, whether it's um, the the many types of categories of life that are touched by the Sabbath which is, you know, it touches all of life. You know, the Sabbath touches economics, it touches justice, it touches, it touches play, it touches delight, wonder, it touches food, it touches sex. All of life are, are impacted in this category. And so, so to intend a day um, with a community of, of your family was really to begin with a discussion of what, what do we want, what do we need, um, we knew it would always involve time outdoors. It would always involve good food and drink. And it would always involve the inclusion of the other, a stranger, a neighbor who needs to be brought into a community. Um, so the, a, lot, a lot of our, our Sabbath practices involved those things making sure we were outside, making sure we were with others, making sure we were um, eating well and drinking well. Yeah, and I kind of um, mentioned this before, uh, just uh, from what you had told me um, when I asked you about being on, having this conversation, is that uh, you had mentioned that your Sabbath practice uh, maybe looks a little bit different from uh, it has in years past. Can you maybe tell us a bit about uh, what that looks like um, now? Yeah, I think I think it's shifted more from that that formal practice of like let's take a day to um, to something more intuitive, something more internal as well. My kids are growing up, so they they're more opinionated about how a day goes, and we can invite to a degree, but. Um, the, the, the practice of Sabbath um, nowadays is, is, um, is to set aside space, whether it's a whole day or not, or not a whole day, is really of little consequence. How much time you have to be present, to attend, to engage, and, and to dismiss all these kind of like sleepy notions of hammocks and, and, kind of nodding off, maybe that's what you need, but maybe what you need is to put your hands in the soil. Maybe what you need is to be restored through connection. So um, to really begin to blow your mind open in terms of what is possible, you've got to start thinking about delight and wholeness and restoration and, and less and less about naps. Well, maybe that could be it, but it could be a lot of other things too. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm just uh, really sitting with what you're saying, Phil. And, um, and I know that for me personally, I'm 
I'm also just kind of reliving uh, a lot of days, kind of witnessing your family and sometimes being the other that's included in, um, in that time and just kind of sitting with the richness of, of hearing you describe that. Um, to kind of throw us a little wrench. Um, so and uh, when I was in seminary, uh, one of the most hotly contested classes that I experienced uh, was a room full of uh, future uh, theological leaders um, who were confronted with uh, the necessity of Sabbath practice. Um, and it was a lot of debate, um, a lot of pushback. Um, and like I said, this was, this was a room full of um, future pastors who would be more than happy to exclude people on the basis of um, sexual orientation or would have an issue maybe with a, a woman being the pastor um, because there are um, biblical um, kind of proof texted reasons for this. Um, but what they, but they were perfectly fine with sort of leaving this um, one of the Ten Commandments completely behind. So I'm curious, Phil, if you've experienced um, this sort of pushback, um, what it says that the Sabbath is a foreign concept to evangelical theology today. It's a great question, and it's a head scratcher to me because you're right. So much ink has been spilt over this question. Um, and if anything, that ought to be a clue that there's something here. It, it, uh, is pretty clear to me that we're missing the point, whatever it is. So, um, the, the kind of anecdote I have to that is I, I helped with research on this book and then ended up teaching uh, spiritual formation class on a seminary level for, for many years on the Sabbath. Um, it was a mixed class of MDiv students and counseling psychology students. Every year, the MDiv students would be sitting at the back of the class, arms across their chest with an attitude of, you're going to have to convince me. And the counseling psychology students are up front and center, leaning in and instantly getting the urgency, the the subversive um, nature of the Sabbath, the implications for health, for society, for you know, just practical reasons for observing Sabbath in terms of, of wholeness and, and justice and inclusion. And seminary students would slowly melt into these concepts as they noticed how much of life it touches. But initially, it's that argumentative, defensive posture of, uh, of you're going to have to convince me this is something I should care about when really <laughs> that, that to argue it is really to miss the point. It really is. Yeah. You know, I think, too, you know, it's interesting, too, you know, Casey, when most folks talk about Sabbath, um, they do, the, the Ten Commandments is typically the go-to um, or, or the Gospels, but, you know, going to creation, I think, is really helpful in um, examining, I think, the Sabbath and, and how that, that comes out of, of, of creation. So it's not, because we, we are quick to throw the law away, you know, oh, Moses, bad, you know, bad guy, <laughs> That old pesky law there, you know, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah I'll, I'll just riff. Can I riff on that a little bit? Please do. Um, just, just in the, the work I've done around the, the creation narrative and the myth and the poetry that's, that's kind of embellished there, um, there, there's this beautiful columnation in, this, in the Sabbath, right, where, where God rests on the seventh day. And um, it's, it's an image that unless you understand the different cultures and religions that surrounded the formation of that myth, that we would just, we just miss it. Okay, he rested. Maybe God was tired. 
Um, but really, in, in any other story, when the divine comes to rest, the divine only does that in, in his temple, right? And typically, these other, these other um, divinities are resting in a temple, and it's at that point that they are served by their subjects, and they, are, they, they get to feast, and they get to, to um, defile, and they get to, to just engorge themselves. But really, this Hebraic myth that is offered at this point is you know, the divinity sits down, is resting, and the context for his rest is not some temple up on a hill. It's all of creation. Creation is the temple of God, and and the subjects, the created peoples, are not there to serve, but rather to commune. So it's a very different narrative, and it's a beautiful picture. Yeah, um, I think that's a really great great way to to put that. Um, I. I'm also kind of struck with um, your your um, your memories of uh, being a, a teacher um, in a, you know because my wife Peggy um, took your Sabbath class I think um, way way back in that time um, mm-hmm. and she was one of the counseling students and um, we also had. Uh, the unique uh, experience of living underneath you guys in a split level house in Seattle um, at the time. But she, she uh, was assigned to read um, Abraham Heschel's work um, and she has uh, marked it up and I'm sitting here holding it right now. I had, uh, had written, read through it um, a bit over the years. We were never assigned this in seminary, uh, <laughs> should have been. Um, that's a topic for another day. But the first time I really got to sit down and read it cover to cover was uh, just last night in preparation for this conversation. Um, And just Heschel's um, framing of the Sabbath as being something created for man um, on that seventh day, um, that that rest is a creation of um, something that will frame time and space I, I was, I bring Peggy into it because she has marked up her book um, and I can, I can attest uh, that as a, um, as a grad school student, she loves this book and um, has spoken about it for, for um, since then. Um, and anyways, so I, I bring Heschel in and, and I wanted to read a quote and kind of see where our conversation went from there. Um, That's okay with you guys. So he says on page, uh, this is on page 89. He says, quote, inner liberty depends upon being exempt from domination of things as well as from domination of people. There are many who have acquired a high degree of political and social liberty, but only very few are not enslaved to things. This is our constant problem, how to live with people and remain free and how to live with things and remain independent. Wow. Yeah. So maybe can you, where does that take you or um, kind of how does the Sabbath free us from dependence on things and space? Yeah, well, Heschel's uh, juxtaposition of those two categories, the world of space, which is, stuff that which we can touch and interact with people included in the world of time are, are how he frames his categories right and so um the world of space is where we conquer it's where we subdue where we own acquire where we dominate where we enslave right it's 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 a realm of um, where we can obsess over control um time has a, has a different set of words associated with it, right? We enter time, we, we 
dwell in time, we share time, we receive time. It's, it's a world where we are all equals because the rich man has no more time than the poor man. Um, we have the same number of minutes. So, so time becomes, it has this equalizing effect on us. So if the world of space is where we do, the world of time is where we be. And these are different, these are different um, teachers. Right? So, so when Heschel says, when Heschel says that the Sabbath, right, is a window into eternity, and it has this, this ability um, to let time open up right? and, and past, present, and future can spill in. It's this, it's this porous space where we can receive a lot and, and share a lot and control very little. Yeah. Um, and I'm, I'm uh, fascinated too, you know, I think there's a way that, um, that you can sort of in, interpret that kind of all, we're, we're all on equal footing as kind of uh, a way to wriggle out of um, social responsibility of, of the, of our call to pursue justice. Um, and, and yet you look at someone like Abraham Heschel, who is um, also an activist and also working alongside uh, Dr. Martin Luther King. Um, you know, this is not a quietism. This is, um, this is a different way altogether. I had a, had a question for you, Phil, you know, uh, particularly for folks that are, um, experiencing oppression that are being marginalized, um, that, you know, um, they, they are, they are, um, yeah, they, they're suffering. Um, what would you say to those individuals about, about Sabbath, about rest? What would be your message to those, uh, those individuals? Well, um, what comes to mind immediately is, um, that, um, to, to Sabbath requires a community. Okay. If, if you, if you can imagine, um, a single mom, you know, working a couple jobs, right. And, and the preacher at church says, well, what you need is some Sabbath rest. And she's looking at her life and saying, this is not possible. It's not possible. Um, and even, even what I described as my family's practice is, is, is a fairly, you know, um, privileged practice, to, to hop in our van and, and go somewhere out in nature and, and to cook a great meal as a family. Um, we have each other and we can, we can pull this off because we have some level of means. Um, we need communities to come together to cultivate Sabbath practice on behalf of one another. Um, I mean, these are, these are big questions and it touches all sorts of things because your question earlier, Casey, um, about economics and, and um, capitalism, really, Sabbath, Sabbath as an economic lens has a lot to say about how we're, how we're constructing our society. Um, Ched Myers is a brilliant brother down in um, California recommend following him closely reading his books. He has a little short book called Sabbath economics. And he, and he says that there's three, there's three notions involved here. It's the, it's the, I'll just rehearse them real quick. It's the suspension of doing in order to be right. So our identity is not in what we do and who we are. Um, it's, it's a communal setting of limits, right? It is, you know, what, what happened in, in the Jewish communities when they were a part of a broader um, capitalist market is 
they fell behind the neighbor's business when the neighbor was open on Saturday and they weren't. So, I mean, from a communal standpoint, it's, it's costly to take a Sabbath. Um, if the community is not on board with that, it's not practicing in some way. And it's a tradition. Thirdly, it's a tradition of economic justice. Um, throughout Leviticus, throughout the old Testament, you have so many dovetailing, um, laws and requirements that involve the return of land that involve um, all sorts of economic justice initiatives. Um, so it, it is, it is something that, that ought to fuel the imagination, I would say of the church, certainly for what could be possible, you know, this whole concept of, of Jubilee, right? Uh, Walter Brueggemann has said in his spicy kind of way, that yeah, it's some, no one ever practiced it, but that there's evidence that it was never actually practiced, that, that this that land was not returned to people after that it had been taken. But in, his, in his, his own kind of way, he said that doesn't mean it ought not to fuel the imagination of the church. So, so to, to really offer the, the good news of Sabbath, because I think, I think it is a matter of good news. It is a, is a gift, as you said, Casey, the way Heschel is framing it. And it's good news for, um, for everybody. And it's good news particularly for th those who are suffering the most. Um, we need a bigger imagination about how to make that actually good news because as Christians, we're experts at muddling what it is to receive a gift. We have, we just complicate that and make it burdensome in a thousand different ways because to receive a gift is in one sense, the most vulnerable thing to open yourself up to goodness. Um, but when Jesus comes along in, in Luke uh, four, right. And he reads the, the scroll of Isaiah and he says, this is really the moment where he, he identifies himself as the embodiment of Jubilee. He says, um, he's here to declare the forgiveness of debts, right? good news to the poor, liberation for the captives, um, healing for the sick, freedom for the oppressed. And he goes down that list and, and he says, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And it's this mic drop moment um, where they know exactly what that means and they resolve to kill him. Um, but it's, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of lines that connect the person of Christ um, with the Sabbath, the Sabbath queen of the Old Testament. Yeah, and I'm struck even in you saying that, Phil, because it's always a challenge to those in authority when you talk about things like Jubilee, when you talk about things like student debt forgiveness, um, <laughs> when you talk about things uh, that, that are a, that would be transformative to people um, and, you know, you see, <laughs> like you like you just said, as soon as Jesus says that, he's not, he is invoking probably the, the, the most dangerous weapon that somebody can, um, his social class, is saying forgiveness is here and coming um, and is real. So, and this is why I didn't finish my sermon from earlier, because I figured. <laughs> we'd eventually get some preach on. <laughs> I figured we'd be all right, um, knowing the two of you. Did, did you, were you about to go into a question, Casey? I can, or you can, if you got one. Well, one of the things I wanted to talk to you guys about, um, particularly 
And, you know, without getting too autobiographical here, you know, COVID has been uh, really uh, almost eliminated Sabbath for me. Um, and, you know, people talking about, you know, working from home, uh, but, you know, I mean, for me, for much of the this year, it's been living at work, you know, mm. and, and not having, you know, of course, you know, you've got social distancing and trying to be safe and things. And so that has really been, um, it's, it's wrecked my Sabbath in many ways, uh, you know, um, and, you know, I, I, I don't know if I have a question here now that I'm, I'm formulating this, but, you know, I'm just, I'm trying to get back to um, and reclaim, as it were, you know, my Sabbath. And, uh, you know, I don't know if one to just, I don't know if any of you can identify that at all or have, have thoughts on that, but, but yeah, I just wanted to share that piece. And I, I commiserate, um, I'm not working at home and still going to work, but you know, the family is school at home and it's a very lived in home and there is no space. There is no margin. Um, but, um, what strikes me is, is this, uh, you mentioned the, the, the realities of COVID is, is that um, COVID has, if anything, been apocalyptic in the sense of revelatory. It has exposed so much, right? Um, and, and what it has, I think, significantly exposed among many things, but to highlight here is, is this sense of life out of balance, right? Who knows how this virus came to be, but but I can assure you it's some form of imbalance that created it and, and brought it to us. And, and there's this uh, Hopi Indian term, um, kuwanakwatsi, and it's, it means life out of balance, out of sync. Um, and it's, it's a, identified as a sickness in that, in that culture. And, and I think what, what you're describing is the, the way that the way that the, the privileged have been able to escape the sickness by, you know, we'll, we'll go off and quarantine in our third home on the lake and ride this out, continue to get paid. Um, and lots of folks are losing their jobs and struggling. And there's a, there's a cliff looming right after Christmas for many and with unemployment. Um, so, so it has exposed exposed and, and widened the gap between the haves and the have-nots and and it's painful it's painful to see and it's and it's also not shocking yeah and, and to answer the question too Dran, i totally commiserate with that as well um yeah you know, as far as autobiographical, I haven't got too much so on this uh, podcast. Um, but yeah, I've spent most of the year uh, working from home and then since August um, have been without a job. So um, with my two small children um, that every now and again make an appearance on our little podcast, <laughs> um, at least their voices. Um, and yeah, so it's, it is such a challenge like you said and and again i also speak from a place of privilege um because uh, peggy works and makes enough money for both of us uh with our little unemployment um but like you said phil that's that is not even in the best of circumstances um that's a small pot of money that runs out um and there are decisions behind that, you know, um, and I know that I'm not alone, so I'm speaking um, personally and sort of large, larger um, communal truth of there is, yeah, there's, there's a lot that this virus has exposed. Um, while, um, you know, Jeff Bezos has become even more obscenely wealthy um, while uh, you know the 
friends that I have that run food banks in Seattle, uh, where Jeff Bezos is headquartered, um, have are working day and night um, because there is no end to the hunger um, in the same city that houses the wealthiest man by any measure uh, in the world. And so I, I say that, Phil, in, in, in response to you, Duran, but also to say almost kind of a one more kind of a pushback into the Sabbath, Phil, um, with so much to do. Um, we've had organizers on um, the podcast, and the next week we're going to have some that are working to um, to block prisons, uh, new prisons being built around uh, in Alabama. Um, so I guess the with so much to do, how do we embrace <laughs> something like rest, whether it's just over Thanksgiving or um, to kind of embrace the Sabbath practice? Great question. Um... The, the world I grew up in um, would have said that you can always be doing more. In, in, in that world, for God, you can always be doing more. Um, in, in, in terms of what you're saying, you can be, always be doing more for justice, for um, excellent causes, and to help people that desperately need it. Um, one of my favorite poets right now is a philosopher named Bayo Akumalafe from Nigeria. And he, I was on his website the other day and across the top of the website, there's this big quote banner and it says, the times are urgent. We must slow down. Ooh. It just hit me like, oh my goodness, yes, yes. And there was something just in the way that line was crafted that just sunk sunk deep into my, my own soul. And even as I say it now, I feel it. We have to come at this work from a place of health because if we do not, we will contribute to the same frenetic energy that is, is, is spinning around us constantly. Um, good, slow work in our communities can do so much um, immeasurable seeds, right? Seeds, the wisdom of the earth, good, slow, faithful work in the places that we are called to be present is what I believe is going to bring about the deepest levels of change. Um, certainly there are people that are, you know, called to do work on, on the meta level and, and God bless them. Um, I'm, I'm not one of them. I, as, as a lot of my peers were expanding their ministries and signing book deals and launching conference tours, I was trying to shrink my influence in the world to a smaller, smaller ring of people um, because, because of that, that notion of what does it mean to, to show up in small, steady, faithful ways. Um, and I absolutely agree. I mean, one of my... I love Eugene Peterson, right? He's the pastor to many pastors. And, um, and he said in an interview once, the person asked him, what is the most important task for the church today? And he said, without a doubt, it's Sabbath keeping. And, and again, it's, it's these little clues that get dropped and you're, if you're paying attention, you got to ask, okay, what am I missing? because that's not what I expected. He also said, when the person asked him, what happens if people don't Sabbath? He took a long pause and everyone's leaning in, expecting some deep theological answer. And he looks up and simply says, they get sick. We get sick. <laughs> and there's Junie. <laughs> uh, so so yes it, it has a uh, there's a great there's a great invitation there and I and I 
loved your question earlier, Duran, about, you know, what, you know, how do I begin to reclaim some of this stuff in, in, in my life where everything has begun to bleed together. And when I think about this for myself and, and, and what I would probably uh, invite others to consider is, is be conscious of how you experience the passage of, of time and, and how you speak about time. If you notice, a lot of people, myself included, speak about time in two categories. Uh, confusion. Oh, my gosh, where did it go? The year flew by. Oh, it's already November? We're confused by the passage of time. And we also speak in regard to time with hostility. Kill time. You know, time just keeps getting away from me. Yeah, I got it find time, you know, it's just this, this thing that we're both confused about and hostile towards. And, and really the invitation is to develop rituals um, because that is how we metabolize time as human beings. Um, I always told my students rituals are how we mark the passage of time and give it meaning. And we do this in all sorts of different ways, but this is, this is what human beings do when confronted with the numinous, like things we do not understand, we cannot control, we create rituals to kind of mediate the presence of time in our lives. And so um, we're interested in rituals for spiritual development, and then we're interested in repetition. And the minute Protestants hear repetition, kind of Rituals and repetition, smells and bells, that's what Catholics do, whatever. But really, repetition is not this mechanistic repetition that produces sameness. It's the kind of repetition that Kierkegaard talked about when he said repetition is transcendence. And for myself, if, if I have, if I'm able to engage in my ritual every morning of meditation and some body stretching and some breathing. Uh, I put on the same timer on my phone. I have a little timer with some bells. I light the same candle. I'm in some kind of a ritual to create the space that is going to mediate um, the kind of experience I'm looking to have. And every time I do this, when I meditate, I'm doing the same thing. And yet, the more I do it, the deeper I'm able to go into it and the more I'm able to receive from the experience. And so repetition becomes can lead to transcendence um, because I'm not trying to control my experience. And I would say this is true of the Christian sacraments, the Eucharist particularly. You know, we, we come to these traditions with faithfulness and repetition and there's, there's things that we do when we do this. And every time, it's, it's different, it's new. And we're drawn up, as C.S. Lewis would say, further up, further in. And, and that's how we begin to experience transformation and wholeness. So anyone, I think, who's feeling kind of lost in this COVID space and blurring of time, and I don't have my rhythms, create new ones would be my invitation. Well, Phil, do you want to tell us a bit about what about what you are planning to do for this Thanksgiving then? And then we'll, uh, I, I feel, I feel like we could have this conversation for hours and hours. Indeed. <laughs> and, um, I want to light a bonfire and crack a couple of beers and maybe turn on some music and, and keep this going at some point. But um, yeah, just maybe what is, what are you thinking about for thanks, Thanksgiving in this completely insane year? Well, for, for starters, we're not, not getting together with uh, my sister. She was going to come up from Chicago with her family and we, we decided not to do that. 
Um, so we're doing our own part to contribute to the non-spread of this virus. Um, there are going to be bonfires. There are going to be beers. It, it's long walks in the woods with the, with the family that I'm hoping to experience and a lot of downtime. But um, to kind of pull in one last Heschel quote, um, which, which I love, and it helps me think about the way I do almost everything and how I want to raise my sons who are now almost, well, one's a teenager, the rest are on their way. Um, but he says, he says that the, the purpose of, of the, the chief aim of man, he says, this is in the old language, the purpose of being a human being is not to acquire more information and more stuff. Um, instead, the purpose of being a human being is to, to become the kind of people that can face sacred moments. And I'm hoping to, I'm hoping to be there when the sacred moments are happening and to know how to be present to them and show up to them, which requires you know, just a, a slowing down and a paying attention and a decluttering of the mind and the heart to be able to receive. There's a lot, a lot to, uh, a lot to take in. Well, I think we should leave it there. As much as I want to keep going, <laughs> Bill Nellis, thank you so much for sitting down with us over the Zoom. Um, and it's, uh, I feel like this is what I needed on the week of Thanksgiving, and hopefully. Uh, someone that listens will feel the same. I hope so too. Thank you for having me. And uh, I love what you guys are doing. I've tuned into a number of your shows and uh, it's an honor to be with you. Thanks brother. Good to have you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Public Theologians. If you like what you heard, or even if you didn't but you felt like it was worth your time, we would greatly appreciate you sharing it with someone you know. We'd also love to hear from you, and if you feel so inclined, we'd gladly accept your support. Go in peace to love and serve.